This is Yudaha Cohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. Joining me on the program today is Elisheva Chazan, a law student at the University of Ottawa. She's a Jewish activist and media relations strategist. She has experience working in diplomacy. She's what we can call a social media influencer. And she's the founder of a movement called Decolonized Judean, which probably meant that she would find her way to this show sooner or later. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here with you. The OG Decolonized Judean. That's real here. <laughs> so why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and, and how you ended up doing what you do? Okay. So um, I grew up in Montreal. My, uh, I was born here. My family's diaspora experience was in Morocco. Mm-hmm. And um, something that has formed my identity is um, going to Jewish school. But the Jewish school that I went to, for it to understand a little bit about Quebec and Quebec's history. So Quebec and Canada were colonized by the French and the English. So when in Jewish schools, there's two sections, French section and English section. Um, here in Quebec, there's a lot of um, language rights issues and there's a huge emphasis on uh, preserving French language. So a lot of the Mizrahi and Sephardi Jews are placed in French section when we're in Jewish school and Ashkenazi Jews are in English section. Mm-hmm. Um, I was the only Sephardi uh, Jew um, who was in an Ashkenazi class. And when I was in elementary school, there was, um, it was, you could tell people would make jokes about, oh, like the French section kids or the English section kids. And I never really resonated with that because I had this a small sense of resentment towards Morocco because my father had to leave. Uh, he was, you know, forced out of the land. They also had experience with Nazis. And I always felt the Jew is a Jew is a Jew. And I never identified with my diaspora experience. And being at school as a kid with, you know, people would say, oh, you're an English muffin or you're a French fry, like things like little elementary kids would say, it's not something I identified with. So a little bit about my formation and my, you know, what was going on around like as a kid is I always identified as a Jew first and foremost. Um, it was it was never formed out of a, a place of a, you know, reaction. It was always who I was. Mm-hmm. There's a profound understanding of that. And um, what brought me to come about with the movement Decolonize Judean is that First, let's talk about what decolonizing is. So decolonizing is undoing colonialism. As Jews, um, our land has been colonized, our minds have been colonized, our emotions and so many uh, levels um, that we need to unprogram. And Judean is a word that I find identifies the Jewish people uh, more accurately because it was the name, what we called us prior to being a diaspora of our last civilization. Jewish just means Judean, it's a more accurate term to describe our heritage. So that's what those two words decolonized Judean means. Um, So the decolonized Judean movement is about Jewish pride and empowerment and taking back our story from a Jewish lens and rooted out of love and out of a Jewish worldview, not from a non-Jewish worldview. And one of our goals, our main goals, is to shift culture and to bring about the Jewish story on TikTok, online, and in a way that's not palatable, but understandable to the non-Jewish world and also to to Jewish people in a way that's not just cool, but is a feeling of pride. Mm-hmm. And um, that's that's a little bit about what uh, about what we do at Decolonize Judea and a little bit about why I wanted to start it, because there's a definitely a need for us to take back our narrative and for us to be proud. Okay, I, I hear all of that, and I think I agree with most of that. And for sure, I mean, it's no question that the Jewish people are a deeply colonized people and when i say that i mean layers and layers and layers of colonization because unlike most colonized peoples that 
really remained in their own countries, speaking their own languages, but you know, under foreign rule and different colonial structures, we were um, not only cast out, but in the case of Ashkenazim, really like into the belly of the beast, into the civilization that had destroyed us. And that caused so many layers of traumatic colonization that we are still not cured from. In terms of this use of the word Judean, I gotta say, I hear you, like I hear that like the last time we had independence in our land, it was the kingdom of Judea, like we referred to this land as Judea. But when a lot of us over here uh, use the word Judean in English, we're specifically referring to Jews living in Judea and sometimes even Samaria. Like meaning Jews living in the West Bank because the word settler is such an offensive term and the, and the connotation is really that we're colonizers and don't belong here. So uh, the best English word that we found is Judean. So I think there's like sometimes a little bit of confusion because like usually when we say Judean, we mean like Jews living in Yuda, Jews living anywhere between Ofra in the north to the southern Hebron Hills in the south. Um, so to refer to like all Jews as Judeans kind of becomes a little bit confusing for us. But I hear what you're doing. I would say also when we're talking about a people in not in our native language, it's never going to be 100% accurate. That's and true. the reason I chose the word Judean is because I think it is the most accurate. Mm -hmm. And the Jewish people in the diaspora now were the descendants of Judeans. So there is that tie that links us back to our land, especially when we're in the diaspora. I think it's important to identify this. Like I find it important to identify this way. Um, I don't. I don't particularly connect with the word Judaism or Jewish. Um, but if we we're going to be 100% accurate, I would say Am Yisrael, 100% amongst right. ourselves in our prayers. That actually makes more sense to me. It would make more sense to me to call every single quote unquote Jew in the world an Israeli. Because really that's like Israelis, B'nai Israel. Yes. You know, I've thought a lot about that. And, but the issue with calling us all Israelis is now that there's a national identity to it. It, it wouldn't signify our belief system too, because Israelis, you know, may not all have the Jewish belief system, what we know about it today, and there's an, a political co component to it. So it's funny, I, I've, I've thought that too, when I was, uh, you know, racking my brain when thinking about uh, what to name the movement. Israelite, decolonized Israelite. It's another period in history too. Mm -hmm. I, I just I just found the word Judean resonated with me. Mm -hmm. And um, actually, it was in my Instagram bio for a very long time, and I would have a lot of people message me saying, "Hey, do you mind if I do you mind if I put decolonized Judea in my bio? Do I have to credit you?" I said, "No, of course not. It's it's a mm -hmm. it's an identity. It's a it's a mood. It's a character almost. It's a it's a vibe. It's a feeling. It's a state of mind even more so. And mm -hmm. that's also what what made me want to mainstream it is because because of how I saw it made people Jewish people Judean people feel connected to who they were." Mm -hmm. All right, yes, yeah, I'm from the tribe of Levi, I'm a Kohen. So I'm def I'm not from the tribe of Judah, but the truth is the tribe of Levi, like the tribes of Shimon and Benjamin, did stick with the tribe of Judah in the kingdom of Judah, the kingdom of Judea. So I guess I guess it ended up being Levi, Shimon, Benjamin, and Judah all becoming the Judeans of the Second Temple. Yeah. My Hebrew name is Elisheva, so she's the mother of all Jewish uh, priesthood, we'd say. Right. She is my great, 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 a few great grandmother. Yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely. And she, but she was from the tribe of Yudah. Elisheva was from the tribe of Yudah herself. Yeah. 
yeah, so maybe, you know, this question of decolonization, because um, that's something, you know, we, we have many programs. I don't know how much you know about the vision movement, but we have a lot of educational programs that are really designed for decolonization. Meaning, first of all, the purpose of what we do is we want to train young Jews to be able to identify and achieve the next goals of Jewish history, like the objectives of Jewish liberation for this generation. And uh, Zionism was a revolutionary movement that accomplished great things for us, but I would argue that it ended in 1967. I would say that when we returned to Zion, when we came back, to Jerusalem in the Six-Day War, that was the end of Zionism. It succeeded, it did everything that it would do. Even from a Kabbalistic perspective, we can look at, at Zionut, Zionism, as the movement of Mashiach ben Yosef, the messianic force of the tribe of Yosef, which is tasked with building the material, the, the physical vessel, the state of Israel, everything we share in common with other nations, you know, a state, a government, an army, an economy, agriculture, education, sanitation, transportation, etc. But since 1967, I think that we've needed to shift our focus towards um, filling that vessel with content, okay. you know, having a post-colonial conversation, you know, all colonized peoples, when they achieve material liberation, need to have the post-colonial conversation We've never done that. You know, in 1948, after the Lochemech Herut Yisrael, the fighters for the freedom of Israel, forced the British to leave our land, the Zionist leaders basically took down the British flag, put up a Jewish flag on a British colonial system and called it a Jewish state. And we've never had real conversations about what makes a state Jewish other than some superficial Jewish decorations on a European-style nation state or a Jewish demographic majority. And now that we're already, you know, almost 80 years in to renewed political independence in our land, we really need to have this crucial conversation. You know, what kind of society are we trying to create here? How can we create a nation state in the 21st century that mm -hmm. is deeply Jewish, that expresses our identity and our values in its policies and in its institutions? And I would argue that one of the major goals of this chapter of Jewish history is decolonizing Jewish identity. But that means Absolutely. something very specific, you know? Absolutely. I would even argue that Zionism, yeah, it has it has succeeded, it is accomplished. But in two ways, it, it, it failed in one way. Herzl thought that it would eliminate anti-Semitism. That obviously did not happen. Right. And in another way that I find it, it didn't succeed and there is still a, a, a use in using the term, especially in the diaspora, is about Jewish rights. Mm -hmm. Zionism is a movement about Jewish rights, and our, this term, Zionism, Zionist, is it has become a toxic term, unfortunately. And I do see a value in taking it back and and still using it because of a question of Jewish rights. And talking about um, us as Jews coming together and having this conversation of what our future is going to be, um, I see decolonized Judean and decolonized Jewish identity as a step forward to do that. Because how are we going to advance Am Yisrael? How are we going to do anything if we don't really know who we are, where we come from. There's so many different, you know, ways that Jews connect to their identity. Um, so, uh, like, I want to give one example of, of um, how I see the college Jewish identity today um, in a way that, that doesn't make it into a monolith. And it's a personal story. Um, so I've um, always kept kosher, but let's say I would go to restaurant, I would be like vegetarian, but it's not like I would never have unkosher meat or anything, but I would be like vegan or vegetarian. And um, when I was sitting in a Jewish history class, um, my teacher, Morefima, said 
the Jews in the Spanish Inquisition had the choice to eat pork or to die. And I thought, wow, those are my ancestors and today they survive because I am the descendant of those who chose to preserve the Jewish identity. I felt so connected and it made me want to keep completely kosher. But that is to me not decolonized, decolonizing Jewish identity, to keep kosher for that reason. Because, you know, I'm a law student, we study in civil liability, we study a lot of cause and effect. The cause is, you know, European, Spanish people who are, you know, oppressing us and not allowing us to keep our culture. And if I were to keep kosher because of that, it wouldn't really be a deep rooted reason. It would be from a non-Jewish perspective almost. Mm -hmm. And as I grew in, you know, I think, you know, decolonized Judean, I'm a decolonizing Judean, probably be a more accurate way. Um, But I guess we want to manifest of decolonized Judean. So part of my decolonizing process was that was a seed. And as I, before much of the living, I felt the profound need to want to make a bracha before I eat on anything, whatever it is. I want to make this material, this 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 act um, more spiritual. I want it to be good for my soul and mentally um, and also physically, mentally, spiritually, everything to be aligned and bring that you know divine aspect to something that is maybe not so um, as spiritual. And that's what made me want to keep completely kosher so I could be able to say a prayer on whatever it is that I eat. And that to me is an example of decolonization because the kavana was from a Jewish perspective. So when you're talking about um, how are we going to advance the next stage, I think that it really starts with these, uh, what may seem small, but acts of Jews reclaiming our identity from how we see it from the Jewish world and not internalizing, you know, internalized anti-Semitism or other or other things or even basing our identity on something that's reactive mm-hmm. and yeah I think you're saying something very important you're basically pointing out the, the way I would word it is the difference between treating the Jewish people as an object with a problem versus treating the Jewish people as a subject with desires you know that was a flaw in Zionism Zionism essentially related to the Jewish people as an object in need of rescue. And I think that what Jewish liberation needs to entail at this stage is really reorienting ourselves towards seeing ourselves as a subject with desires. It's not about solving a Jewish problem. It's about what our people have wanted for thousands of years. And and I really appreciate you pointing out the fact that part of decolonization is looking at the world through the lens of our people's civilization, Mm -hmm. through the worldview of our ancestors, and not just trying to fit ourselves in as like another minority group in somebody else's civilization. No, and even today, like I see a lot of Jews online, like uh, making their whole Jewish identity about being progressive. You know, it's acquiescing to what's you know in style right now. But Jews don't fit into the taxonomies of our time. We cannot be grouped into that. We're an eternal people, mm-hmm. and I think that's a key, key part, and, um, oh, and that's what we do. Right. Nachon. Nachon. Uh, absolutely. So I think that the real milestone for you will probably be coming and moving to Judea. And we can yeah. we can throw a big party for you. We can sort <laughs> We can feed, you know, probably 100 people, 200 people. And <laughs> Yella. No, I mean, that is like that. That's real here. Like, you know, what I'm saying like people in our movement are, are shepherds. People in our movement are living on mountain. Like, I, I mean, I live on a mountaintop uh, just north mm-hmm. of Ramallah. Like we're holding it down for real. Um, we're also involved, like just like I say, decolonization is an important objective for this generation. So is, in my opinion, Jewish-Palestinian reconciliation. But I think mm-hmm. that, but I think that needs to be led by the Jews who are least colonized or who have gone the furthest in the decolonization process. And right now, that happens to be the Jews. I mean, that's part of the challenge that the Jews who are most capable of engaging not only Palestinians but I think you know our neighbors more broadly. Um, 
the Islamic world are often the Jews who don't want to because they see it as like a sign of weakness or an act of betrayal. So a part of our work here is actually getting the like most hardcore Judeans to actually want to engage with Palestinians to be capable of hearing their story, because I think that's also part of decolonization is, Absolutely. is the way we look at truth. Meaning, you know, the way we look at logic, this is something we emphasize a lot on our programs. You know, in, in Western civilization, logic is very Aristotelian, it's very dualistic. You know, either you're right or I'm right. Either what you're saying is true, what I'm saying is true. Whereas if you look at Hebrew logic, it transcends the either or. I mean, our entire Gemara, our entire Talmud, our Kabbalistic literature is all basically showing that like this is true and this is true. You just have to be looking right. And here's why I used to do mood court when I was a kid based on halacha and um, and now being in law school, it's it's so different studying um, civil law versus doing the other kinds of mood courts that I participated in. So I completely agree, mm-hmm. completely. Um, I, I agree with you that decolonization has to also include our neighbors, our cousins, Palestinians. And I see my role as a Jew who's still living in the diaspora because I know my tikkun is to come back home as it is for all of us. Um, one of the goals is to unite Jews and Palestinians also in the diaspora. And um, an even deeper level is to call out the bad actors in this space. Because we see in the diaspora especially, um, there's effects that happen on the land with you know the, the wave of information warfare that just happened in, in May. And I think a huge, huge problem is that Jews and Palestinians aren't talking to each other, mm-hmm. at least in the diaspora. They're talking to the colonizers are talking to our oppressors, they're talking to the media, they're talking to NGOs, and we're painting each other, we're talking about each other. And that is one of the biggest challenges that I have here is trying to speak to the Palestinians one-to-one. Mm-hmm. Um, because and, and I think there's a unique way that Jews in the diaspora can play because there isn't that power dynamic or the difference that there is on the land. It's, you know, we're both university students, let's say. And you know what's interesting? I find I have an easier time connecting with Palestinians in the land, in Israel, than in the diaspora. A much, much easier time. Like when I went to Tel Aviv University, um, I had a way easier time speaking to Palestinians or um, in Jerusalem versus here, there's so much polarization, so much anti-normalization. So when we're talking about leading um, the conversations, I think they also have to do with conversations outside of the land as well. No, I, I think that, you know, for us, I think one of the reasons, uh, I mean, you'd have to ask the Palestinians who engage with us, but I think I think one of the reasons why Palestinians have an easier time engaging with us than with the Hasbara organizations or with, you know, the quote unquote Zionists is because mm-hmm. we're, we're very open. Um, first of all, we listen. Like, I, I think that at the end of the day, I, I remember, for example, a few years ago, um, I think it's already six, seven years ago, I was brought to speak to the SIA group at York University. That's like Students Against Israel Apartheid. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes when I travel to North America, I do speak to pro-Palestinian organizations. And so th- this group, you know, brought me to speak. And uh, it was organized by Shai, who you know. And um, I spoke to them for about, I guess, uh, 40 minutes. And then the leader of the group, she was not Palestinian. I think she was actually Syrian, if I remember correctly. She said to me, Rabbi, I agree with everything you're saying, but what are we going to do about the Jewish extremists? And I wasn't sure who she meant. You know, this was 2015. There was just like the mm-hmm. Duma affair. Um, you know, there's JDL in Toronto. I didn't know who she was talking about. So I said, well, who do you mean? And she said, you know, the Jewish extremists, Hasbara, stand with <laughs> her. And I started laughing and she says, Rabbi, why are you laughing? And I said, I'm laughing because they think I'm an extremist. 
And she says, exactly. how could that be? Like, like, how could that be? Like, how could you be an extremist? Everything you say, we agree with. And I, and I realized at that point that the definition of a Jewish extremist in Palestinian spaces is radically different from the definition of a Jewish extremist in Jewish spaces. Meaning in the Jewish community, an extremist is defined for the most part on their positions when it comes to territory and their positions when it comes to Torah and halakha. That's basically what would make a Jew an extremist in Jewish spaces. But when it comes to the Palestinian perspective, it seems that a Jewish extremist is really determined, or the extremism of a Jew is determined by how ignorant or insensitive they are to Palestinian suffering. And I think the fact that we're willing to look at it, we're willing to really confront what Palestinians have experienced here over the last century and the ways in which we've contributed to that, meaning the ways in which the Zionist movement have done things. And, you know, I, I can't say that everything, you know, if we had the chance to go back in time, would we do things different? I don't know, because sometimes there's no choice. Like mm -hmm. sometimes you have to do what you have to do. I can't fault the Zionist movement only a few years after the Holocaust for fighting with the ferocity that it did when it came to the 1948 war. We were just out of the ovens. Look, I mean, the fight against the British had been going on already for, you know, since 1939, 1940. But, mm -hmm. um, but when it came to like being attacked on all sides from Arab armies, I just don't see how any Jew in that situation could allow themselves to be soft. So- We chose life. Uh, right, right. And sometimes that requires violence. But m my point is acknowledging it, even if we're also acknowledging that nothing else could have been done, acknowledging that there has been a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, and they're living in a completely different story. Meaning I'm very much of the opinion that Israelis and Palestinians have been living in two completely different realities, two completely different narratives, two completely different movies for the last hundred years. And we don't even agree what we're fighting over. I mean, to most Israelis, this is a fight over two competing nationalisms. And mm -hmm. for most Palestinians, this is an anti-colonial struggle. And it's funny because we don't even, by not listening to the other, by refusing to engage with the experiences, the identity, the narrative of the other, we actually end up adopting counterproductive methods of struggle. We end up fighting past each other because we don't really fight the other and they don't really fight us. We're fighting our fantasy of the other and we're employing methods of struggle that would work if they were what we think they are. Like, I'll just give you a quick example, like the way Hamas fights Israel uh, because they really believe they're waging an anti-colonial struggle and that we are colonizers here, we are foreigners here. They really believe that if they make the price of occupation more expensive than the benefits of exploitation, we will leave. Because that is how you wage an anti-colonial struggle. That's how we beat the British. For terrorism, Jewish terrorism, no one talks about it. Right, because there's like, you know, in Hasbro spaces, people are ashamed. But the truth is the Lehi identified British economic interests in the region and struck at those interests. Like, for example, the Haifa oil refinery. Um, mm -hmm. In 1947, we blew that up. And that was one of the main British interests in the region. And it only took a few months after that until they said, okay, we're going to leave. We're going to hand this over to the UN. So that worked against the British because the British really were colonizers here. Now, the problem is when Hamas uses those tactics against us, 
a people that totally self-identifies as indigenous. I mean, I'm avoiding, I mean, you could hear from my words, I'm avoiding the question, are we indigenous or are we not indigenous? Because I think that it almost doesn't matter because we think we're indigenous. The, the sociological reality is we believe we're from this land. We believe we have nowhere else to go. We believe this is our home. And that's what we're doing here. So if you attack us using anti-colonial tactics, we are going to respond like an indigenous people with superior firepower that feels threatened. And it confuses them every time. Like they don't get it because they refuse to even entertain how we see ourselves. Like that doesn't even factor in. And, and we're of course doing that too. That's the problem that you have both sides basically superimposing identities and ideologies and motivations on the other that have very little to do with how the other experiences ourselves. And so it's happening in both directions. And that's one of the reasons I think this conflict continues to, to rage as long as it does, because we are just fighting past each other instead of actually um, asking, well, how does the other see himself? Like, like, what do they think they're doing here? What do they think they're fighting about? And I would hope that if we would do that, we'd be able to get to some uh, type of real reconciliation uh, and be able to build this country together as partners. But even if the goal is to win, even if the goal is just to defeat the other, I think we have an interest in understanding the other as they understand themselves. Right. It's really interesting what you what you were, what I want to touch on what you first mentioned is how um how in Palestinian circles you are not viewed as an extremist, but in Jewish circles perhaps you would be labeled as such. Right. And what I find super interesting about that is I relate to it. And I think it's because in those, you know, the classic Hasbra, and I don't mean to call out the organization, but I mean Hasbra in the colloquial sense, like uh, the way it's used with propaganda or like advocacy loosely in Hebrew, um, those kinds of advocates aren't speaking from an authentic perspective of who we are. It's right. based on what does the world think is extremist and the world has imposed, you know, we should have a two-state solution. It only makes sense for them to divide the land. Like, oh, they both want something, we should slice it up, but we shouldn't be, um, you know, trading our, the cradle of our civilization. So it's, it, that's just really an interesting point. And, Talk about like what you were saying about um, how they're fighting us as if we're the colonialists. I hope to see at least now. Um, I don't. I don't know if you're familiar with Michael Duran's work, but I really like. Uh, I heard one of his podcasts. I really like what he was saying um, with uh, the U.S. and and Iran and what's happening now and how U.S. the United States is changing their strategic um, strategy in the Middle East and we see how they're. Um, not supporting Saudi Arabia anymore, and it's almost neo-colonialism. How Israel and others and other states who are actually have a stake in the region, like Saudi Arabia or like, you know, the UAE, aren't invited to the GCPOA to have a, to be at the table to have a talk. Aren't even welcome. Um, whereas you know, European countries and the United States are to talk about the future of our region. So when we're talking about um, colonialism, I see a solution to it as being peoples of the Middle East uniting against that, against that neo kind of colonialism um, that, that, that we see today. Was the British, now it's the United States and Europe. Interestingly enough, that was one of uh, Lehi's main objectives for after the British would leave. The goal was not just an independent Jewish state, but a united Semitic region, meaning a Semitic bloc that would essentially wage a shared struggle against imperialism in the region. Neutrality in the Cold War, keep the Americans out, the Soviets out, uh, keep the British and French out of here, and, and just build up the region based on the interests of the Semitic peoples. And Israel really integrating because, you know, indigeneity is shouldn't just be like a Hasbara talking point. We should have a desire yeah. to indigenize. Like the idea is to actually 
come back. The, the I mean, in Hebrew, we would use the word tshuva, like the idea, mm -hmm. like that is, I think that's for us at least, not for all peoples, but for the Jewish people, I would say that decolonization is almost synonymous with the concept of tshuva, at least in the broad sense, that we're returning to ourselves, we're returning to our identities, we're returning to the, to the worldviews of our ancestors, we're returning to our land, we're returning to our folkways, to our cultural practices, you know, and I think that uh, part of that is, you know, engaging with our neighbors and trying to rediscover for ourselves what it means you know we were in exile a long time and there's mm -hmm. a lot to fix there's a lot of healing that needs to be done that's why i think this decolonization framework is so important because it, it can allow us to properly heal but we need to also understand you know even the way we relate to land part of the problem like you mentioned all these hasbara organizations that are trying to like promote a Yair Lapid type of Israel to the rest of the world. <laughs> I think the world wants to see, you know, but but they're embarrassed by Batella Smotrich, right? They don't they don't want him in uh, England. But what they essentially do by promoting a two-state solution, they're communicating, we see land as real estate. And that's not how our people relates to this land. Like for us, this land is not real estate. It's not a commodity. It is our soulmate. Like there's no such thing as like, oh, we'll cut a little piece here and a little piece there and and give that to you over there and, and give that to this person. No such thing. We have an obligation to create a society, to rebuild our civilization in our entire homeland, which is our soulmate, and to create the conditions for the non-Jews who are here with us to have good lives, to be our allies. Um, and of course, we have a responsibility to make sure there is justice in the entire land. And for that, we need to be in our entire land. We need to be strong. We need to be capable of defending ourselves. But more importantly, we need to be just. And I think that's part of you know the, the shift from seeing ourselves as an object versus a subject and going from defense to offense will force us to think about well, not just our right to the land, but our obligations. You know, how can we create a just society for all peoples in Eretz Israel? Mm -hmm. I have a question for you. Sure. Um, you, you talk a lot about Lehi. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that they're, I guess, almost branded for having, you know, a bad rep or mm -hmm. being the more, like, I would quote unquote extreme, because I, I see what you mean about Lehi, but why do you think, where do you think that comes from? And I, before I, before you answer, I also think that has to do a little bit with what we see today. Um, the same people who you know will will, will theme Lachi as a, you know a bit extremist and kind of distort what they're saying. Um, also, don't have um, the world adopt the non-Jewish worldview of what it means to be Jewish or elements of what it means to be Jewish. But yeah. Well, first of all, I think most people when they examine Lachi, um, and this is actually my my wife was studying Lachi for her doctorate, uh, Marxism and Messianism in Lachi. So that sounds she, so cool. She's more the expert than I am. She also, you should know her because she also has a whole um, a whole approach to like uh, post-colonial Hebrew feminism that you might be interested in. And definitely will. We'll, we'll connect after the, the pod. Yeah, but the, when it comes to Lehi, I think most people, unfortunately, most people are shallow, like on all fronts. It's not just when it comes to Jewish history. And I think when people engage with Lehi, they just look at its methodology and not the ideas um, or, or political theories behind the methodology. Meaning the way I would describe what Sternism is and why it's different from Zionism, I would say that Sternism is the application of revolutionary theory to um, the Jewish people as the Jewish people have historically understood ourselves. 
meaning according to like the real story of the Jewish people, the real identity of the Jewish people, taking revolutionary theory and applying it to that. Uh, and I think that um, it was incredibly uh, sophisticated, much more politically sophisticated than any of the Zionist dreams. And also it was incredibly effective. I mean, I think that if we could, we can attribute the success of much of the Zionist movement, much of what Zionism accomplished to Herzl. We could attribute the revival of the Hebrew language to Eliezer ben Yehuda, if we're going to pick one mm -hmm. person. But I think the fact that the British left here and our land was freed and we were able to declare a state should be attributed to Lehi. And um, and a lot of that, you know... Lehi alone? Yeah. I, I mean, I would say that Lehi was successful in dragging the Etzel into a confrontation with the British. But Lehi mm -hmm. had been fighting for five years before that. And, and, and Lehi had a principled theoretical position on why we should be fighting the British, going back to the 1930s. And so I, I don't think we should associate Lehi with arm struggle. I think arm struggle is a tactic they used when they came to the conclusion that that was the appropriate tactic. Anybody who would identify as a sternist today would probably not use arm struggle because we live in an independent state of Israel with its own security forces. So like it's no longer in the hands of the individual or the underground or the revolutionary vanguard to engage in armed struggle because we have political independence and we have an army and we have a police force and we're not fighting the British. Uh, but I think a lot of the ideas of Lehi in terms of the political ideas, which maybe not like Am Yisrael was not ready for them at, at that time, the 1940s and even in the 1950s and 60s, when many of the veteran leaders of the underground tried to promote their ideas in Israeli society, um, we weren't ready. But I think and we, now? I, I think we might be ready today. I think today... How the, come? Well, first of all, just the way that Israeli society has developed. I think that the Jews more deeply rooted in our identity, in our Torah, uh, more connected to our homeland and to our meta-narrative, um, just have had more kids and are more dominant in society than we were 50 years ago. Um, I think that, um, you know, especially in Judea and Samaria, especially in the West Bank. And, and there are also ideas that a lot of young people um, in the diaspora are connected to, like, for example, decolonization or mm -hmm. being able to like recognize how capitalism functions or how imperialism operates like that's something that like a lot of the jews weren't really looking at a lot of israeli society wasn't really like paying attention to uh, so closely whereas now and our role in that meaning there's also the question of how like israel's policies were driven by and have contributed to systemic anti-semitism but on a global level meaning you know from the time of david ben gurion the state of Israel had a policy of superpower patronage, of trying to align the state of Israel with the most powerful Gentile nation we can connect ourselves to. And this was really, I, I think, a very deeply ingrained um, practice, that a survival uh, mechanism that Jews had picked up, especially in Europe, when we allowed ourselves to be enlisted uh, to manage the oppression of others in order to make ourselves valuable to the nobility, especially in like feudalist Europe. Uh, that's, yeah. really, that's really how systemic anti-Semitism kind of uh, formed. Started. Right, like, and I think that, that the state of Israel has allowed itself to be pushed into that role on the global stage 
and ultimately our ability to break free from that and i think this is where a lot of sternest ideas are relevant ultimately we have to make a conscious decision as a nation to side with the oppressed of the world and not the oppressors and that was something that actually a lot of the lehi veterans were trying to do in the 1950s and 60s whether we're talking about the semitic action movement or we're talking about the israeli committee for free algeria you know while the labor zionist government was supporting the french in their occupation and colonization of algeria um the lehi veterans were supporting the algerians in their struggle for freedom against the french uh, when the state of israel teamed up with Britain and France against Egypt in 1956 you know the lehi leaders were like wait a minute why are we allowing ourselves to serve the interests of european imperial powers against another semitic nation where ideally we should be on the same side of the other semitic peoples like that's just a different level of thinking that that maybe history wasn't ready for um and i think that we also need to take But do you think the semitic nations were ready for for our allyship and for uh, our, no. our, our support also no but i think it's a chicken egg question because i think that we also have to be you know zionism a lot of people like to use zionism as a synonym for jewish liberation and i used to do that too like i used to also use the word zionism as a synonym for jewish liberation and i would anachronistically apply it to people who predate the term by thousands of years like i would say yuda makabe was a zionist or i would say rabbi akiva was a zionist but the truth is rabbi akiva was not a zionist rabbi akiva was interested in jewish liberation and in the jewish people fulfilling our mission in history now i think it'd be correct to say that zionism was one of many jewish liberation movements it was a link in a very long chain stretching back thousands of years and i think that that link that zionist link is important for three reasons uh, number one it was successful it succeeded where many of the jewish liberation movements before it had failed that's one of the reasons i think it's important uh, but other reasons and i think we have to really confront this are that first of all zionism utilized a very european type of nationalism like uh, you know zionism has a very given the times given the right. times of nation states Right, meaning that Zionism has a very interesting dialectical relationship with the Haskalah, with the Jewish Enlightenment. On the one mm-hmm. hand, the Haskalah made the birth of Zionism possible, but on the other hand, Zionism was very much a rejection of the Haskalah rebranding Jewish identity as a religious identity. Mm-hmm. That was horrible. Right. It, we have to come back to today. Right, and the third thing, and I think this is really probably the most relevant piece, is that zionism utilized colonialist methodology meaning that that zionism borrowed colonialist tools in order to achieve you know that's why we're we're so unique in history i mean the jewish people really are unique in history in that we're the only example i could think of of an ancient people that had been displaced from its land thousands of years ago yet managed to maintain its identity in exile and come home reunite and reconquer the land it had been displaced from but largely through colonialist tools how would you say they were used i've heard you say this before on, on um as last night i was looking at um a youtube before our interview i've heard you say this before how would you say that zionists use colonialist tools don't you find kibbutzim as us interacting with the land for example or returning like the five major aliyahs how would you, besides the language that herzl obviously used that was um inaccurate or just ma- match the times besides the language in terms of actions how would you say zionists did that 
No, no, the language, you're right. The language just, I think, was meant to um, appeal to the powerful nations of the time and just like speak in a language they understood. Uh, so mm -hmm. using the terminology is not really what I think we would be troubled by. Um, mm -hmm. But I think it, it's more the methodology. And I'm saying specifically labor Zionism. I think labor Zionism more than any other stream, really uh, part of it was collaboration with the British. Uh, part of it was the method of land acquisition. Um, and it's complicated because again, like the way settler colonialism works, whether we're talking about the United States or Canada or, or New Zealand, Australia, whatever, um, mm -hmm. part of it is often renaming places that, you know, and kind of like erasing the identities of the people who were there before in order to kind of give it our own identity or, or the colonizer's identity. And with us, it's complicated because that practice took place under Zionism of like renaming places, changing names of places from like Arabic names to Hebrew names. But in most cases, the Hebrew name was actually the original name. Yes, it's so, reverting back. Right. So so I think it's, you, you know what it's like? Look, look, it could be look, seen as a tactic. Almost. It could be seen as a colonial tactic if you don't really know the history. Right. Reverting it, back to what it is, right. to what and, it originally was. Right. And it's one of many examples. I, I don't want to get too stuck in all the different examples of how Zionism utilized colonialist tools, uh, although you should know that that was something that the Lehi was very critical of. I mean, that was one of the things that made the Lehi say, like, we're not Zionists, like we're something else. We are an indigenous people's liberation movement because we're not a colonial project. Like we're not participating in colonialism uh, and we desire unity with all our neighbors as opposed to the Zionists who really wanted to make ourselves as useful as possible to the powerful white countries. So when I say that Zionism did colonialism, um, and that, by the way, that might've been the only effective way to liberate our people. I mean, I have to acknowledge that if that's the only methodology that would work, then maybe it was right to do. But today, now that we have power, now that we are strong, now that we are secure, we should dismantle all those all those colonial structures. Now, for sure, I would say that the way Israel rules the West Bank, the Sumerian Judea regions, are definitely through structures of colonial control. And that's something we definitely have to dismantle, I think, if we're going to move forward. I think we're, Absolutely. you know, we're living, and it's not every community. There are Jewish communities that I think really do function as settlements, meaning it looks like a UFO, just kind of drop them down. They have a gate around them. The army's protecting them. The people inside have like nice Western suburban lives and but they don't go outside their gate because like the scary Arabs are out there. That is mm -hmm. definitely a colonial way of living for sure. Uh, but then there are other there are other Jewish communities out here that have no fence around them that are totally like living organically on the land. And if Palestinian neighbors threaten them, they're going to fight. They're not going to wait for the army. They're not, you know, they're just going to fight. And I think, you know, without getting into whether or not the violence is correct, I think that's definitely a much more decolonized expression of Jewish identity, meaning they're not living here according to colonial structures. And even their issues with Palestinians are much more horizontal as opposed to just kind of like hiding behind state power. So, so I think those things need to be addressed and, and need to be unpacked. And ultimately, the colonial structures that remain here need to be dismantled. I 100% agree with you. I just feel normally it's normal for me to feel uncomfortable with using the term colonial when describing sure. anything that has to do with Israel and Jews because I'm also a university student on campus. This is mm -hmm. stuff that I fight day to day. So. Right. But I'm talking to obviously an ideologically empowered Jew uh, living in, um, you know, Gufna. So 
it's something that I also have to get used to. But I think it's almost unfair in a way to, to use those words because Oslo was imposed, not imposed on us, but aggressively. Um, Oslo was imposed. Aggressively. It was imposed, but I, I feel like we should have, as a Jewish people, as a Jewish state, more agency. Mm-hmm. And uh, we should sure. take that back. So talking well, about it without acknowledging the, the processes is always difficult because this is what the narrative that we're fighting online. Right, no, I, I think you're 100% mm-hmm. correct that, but we have to acknowledge what's true. I, I think once we acknowledge what's true, we can offer our understanding of how it came to be, the explanation for why it exists this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, for example, yes, like our insecurities and feeling that we can't survive without American support is a deep pathological expression of our colonization. And that's something that we have to overcome and break free from. I like an area where we need to decolonize, but in the meantime, it does explain a lot of our behavior, a lot of our policies, uh, even our discomfort with power. Like I would say that the Jewish people have not had power for thousands of years. And as a result, we don't know what to do with it. Sometimes we overuse it. Sometimes we underuse it. Obviously, it's a contentious political debate within Israeli society. I think even uh, using the diaspora too. Right. I personally think we overuse power when it comes to Palestinians, or at least we use the wrong kind of power and we Mm -hmm. underuse power when it comes to the international community. I think we, we should have a much more um, we should have a much more hardline posture when it comes to the Western world and the international community and things that they're trying to force on us. And I think we should have a much more benevolent um, posture towards Palestinians because really, you know, at the end of the day, we've beaten them. You know, like they, they don't even in many cases understand that we're still in a conflict. They just think we're being colonizers. They don't realize that we think there's still like a two-sided conflict. And if like we lift these colonial structures of control, then they'll just like start killing us. Like that's how, let's be honest, that's how most Israelis see it. Most Israelis believe that we need these walls and checkpoints and curfews and, and like military control in order to stop them from massacring us. That is what most Israelis believe. And there is historical evidence to validate that perspective. Um, but, but that's not like like when you ask Palestinians, well, why is Israel doing this? They, they don't think it's because we're afraid. They don't think it's because we think they're a threat. They don't think it's because we think this is a two-sided conflict. That, that's like ridiculous to them. They think it's just like a one-sided oppression. Exactly. When you say Jewish rights or, you know, Israeli rights or talking about Israeli suffering, it's almost it's almost laughable to them because it's not something that they see. And when we live in a world of alternate facts, like compassion, empathy is so important in first bringing about that and showing the Jewish perspective. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, I think that um, it comes from a place of fear also in Israeli society. And like we spoke about at length in this episode so far is um, how are we going to decolonize Ben Freeman in his book? We'll use the word unprogram or deprogram instead of the word decolonize. How are we going to unprogram um, this fear that we have, this or get comfortable with the idea of having power? And right. we see like the kind of Jew, like Seth Rogen. He's someone who's definitely uncomfortable with Jews having power. Mm-hmm. And that is, um, I guess, I'm speaking from a place that I still live in Montreal um, and I see it a lot. Um, and I see this, this, I see Palestinians who would laugh at the idea of Jews, you know, suffering in Israel. It's not something that's understood. In May, we saw people saying, "Oh, but but you guys have a bomb shelter," mm-hmm. as if that was um, you know some sort of counter argument measuring the degrees of suffering. So, 
I guess to me, what I would see as advancing the next stage would be eliminating that fear and being confident in, right. in who we are. Right. And I think and I think there's a symbiotic relationship. You know, I mentioned two objectives for this generation, but I also have a, a third, and that's freedom from the United States. Not taking their money, not taking their weapons, not taking their orders. And I think that these three goals, decolonizing Jewish identity, reconciliation with Palestinians, and freedom from the United States, have a symbiotic relationship, are all interdependent in that the more we decolonize, the more confident we'll be uh, with power and the more we'll be able to engage Palestinians from a place of confidence and not insecurity. And obviously the less we feel pressure from outside, from Washington or other Western governments to do this or to be that, you know, also obviously within Israeli society, there is a, a cultural struggle between those who want Israel to be an outpost of Western civilization and those who want Israel to be a uniquely Jewish country. And because we're still very much in the, you know, beginning stages, like the, the I guess now we can say the teenage stages of our national development, um, it's not clear what that means to have a Jewish society. I think when a lot of people hear that, they get scared. They think we're talking about yeah. Iran or a, or a giant Haredi community, but really that's not where this is going. You know, we have come back to life to rebuild Hebrew civilization in order to inspire the rest of humanity. Every time the Jewish people have had power in history, we've changed uh, the world for the better. Even the concept of a weekend is something that humanity got from us when we had power. So, mm -hmm. so you know, just like basic workers' rights, like 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 Bemet, um, now that we've come back to life, we have to think about what we have to give, like what we're going to create, what we have to give. Um, and the greatest proof to me that this isn't going to become a Jewish Iran or a giant Haredi community is simply that those things will not inspire the world. And our mission is to inspire the rest of human civilization. Our mission is to lead humanity somewhere better. And the world is falling apart today, you know, on many fronts. When you look at, when you look at uh, the state of the world today, it's crumbling. Like the current world order is crumbling. The system is crumbling and people are looking for answers. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of uh, very frightening figures are able to take power in certain countries. But ultimately, I think the world is waiting for the reborn nation of Israel to introduce something new, to lead the way towards something better. You know, when we talk about all of our contributions over the centuries, whether we're talking about Einstein or Marx or Freud or Spinoza, that is really just the clearing of the throat compared to what Israel has to say now that we're back in our land and independent and able to build our own society, uh, revive our own culture, you know, build Hebrew civilization. And the problem is we have to catch up to that. Like we internally need to understand that we have a job to do. Like we have a, an historic task that wasn't able to be achieved when we were aghast. But now that we're a solid again in our land, we have work to do. Absolutely. And I think we mentioned, you know, America and, and how America's role um, in, in the conflict. That also has to do with Jews in America decolonizing their identity. Because you see a lot of American Jews who think that the Israeli-American alliance is a mutual alliance, as if um, it's mutual aid, as if both benefit exactly the same. And that's an impediment, um, a huge one. So we, we definitely need to break free from that. And it's happening. I see that more and more, you know, like APAC is losing its power uh, among your generation. Uh, mm -hmm. Like people are less interested 
in that model of supporting Israel. Because let's be honest, all those you know Jews in the United States who are all about the relationship, it's not about what's best for Israel. It's about what makes them feel more secure living in the diaspora. Like obviously it feels safer when the country you live in is close to Israel, close to the Jewish state, as opposed to just being two completely separate national actors on the world stage. So I think a lot of that psychologically, a lot of that support for APAC and the US-Israel relationship really, you know, within the US Jewish community was like psychologically driven by insecurities. By yeah. Yeah, by fear, by a need for like the government we live under to be closely allied and even controlling the Jewish state. Like we're all on the same team. Like Israel needs to be the Robin to America's Batman. <laughs> but I think that that's like, obviously, first of all, I think that's obviously like a G-rated fantasy. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's naive. It's bemented. It's completely naive to think that nations function on that level. Nations are gangs, you know, like they're basically street gangs with more expensive weapons. We're living in a world of social Darwinism and, and maybe one day we won't. And hopefully Israel will lead humanity into a post-capitalist world where it's no longer social Darwinism. But right now it is. And the United States only gives us anything because it's in their interest. They want control. They want control over us. They want to be able to operate in our region. And, and I think that we need to understand that nations have interests and we need to define our own interests. Meaning the problem is as long as we convince ourselves that we are just, you know, uh, Batman and Robin, we're not going to define what our interests are. We're just going to constantly redefine our own interests according to what their interests are and try to convince ourselves that those are also our interests. We need to define what are the Jewish people's national interests, what is our vision for the world, you know, what kind of human civilization do we want to see, do we want to contribute to bringing about, and that might be very different from the current American-led global order. It for sure is. It's normal for different countries to have different interests, especially Israel in the Middle East and America, where where it is. Um, we already see American interests in the Middle East changing and evolving, and Israel and, you know, America's former allies, or current allies, but abandoning them in a, in a way. Um, you mentioned uh, the state of power. Um, I'm doing some research now on um, surveillance capitalism and how we saw in the 20th century, there was you know, the rise of totalitarianism. We, everyone thought it was new, but now there's this new power that's coming about. And it's, it reminds me of the video you made about the matrix. It's called, um, and it reminds me of it because it's a kind of power that we are not, not really conscious of. And it's an instrumentarian power. And she talks about surveillance capitalism and how we're moving, there was once an economy of scope, an economy of scale, and now it's an economy of action. How things online are dictating, um, making decisions for you almost, and it's removing the sense of human agency. And what it's essentially doing is controlling people for profit. And I guess in a time that's evolving, um, a time that we are now, and now that we are back in our homeland, we have you know sovereignty over our land, most of it, some of it. Um, it's, it's interesting to see how Israel is going to make its way to being the power that it is destined to be in this era, especially with, you know, the eventual fall of the American empire, which we see, see is happening inevitably. Sure. The United States is clearly on its historic decline. That's not a question. A hundred percent. The question is whether or not Israel can get out from under it before it collapses. ASAP. <laughs> right. Well, anyway, uh, Elisheva, it's great having you on the show. Thank uh, you so much. Where can listeners find your work? 
so you can find me online at Isabella Hazan on Instagram and on every um, platform and also Decolonize Judean I'm spelled exactly the way you, you hear it um, on Instagram and also www.decolonizejudean.com we have um, this new thing where students and youth are writing blogs to for how for how they connect to digital identity and other ways of decolonizing and we're hopefully growing and yeah check it out we're we're a movement that's growing all right you're fair elisheva thank you so much for joining me um listeners if you want to support some of the work we're doing here you can go to visionmag.org and click the donate button up top some per podcast support would go a long way in helping us expand our reach and getting our message out to more people and if you can't support us financially that's okay just share this episode or any of our podcasts anything that we're producing and that will go a long way to uh, helping us expand our reach anyone interested in checking out the show notes for this episode you can go to visionmag.org/the next stage 71